As I've already stated this morning in our introduction, one of the doctrines that sets us apart from, oh, I guess you'd safely say 99% of the religious world is that we believe that God is totally sovereign in man's eternal salvation. By that, we mean that the only thing that will land a soul in heaven is the choice of God and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Period. No belief on a sinner's part. No prayers on the part of a concerned loved one. No minister preaching the gospel ever so effectively will affect the destiny of one of God's saints. It is purely the work of the triune God that determines whether you will make it to heaven or not. Now, this is a radical position to most people. If they've had any sort of Bible training whatsoever in their life, they've come to believe that some man has a part to play in the salvation of a sinner. The Roman Catholic wants the priest to be involved through the numerous sacraments. Those are key roles for him in the salvation of the soul. Someone like a Presbyterian who comes very close in many places to what we believe as far as the predestination election, even he wants the preaching of the gospel through an ordained minister to be part of the instrumental means, they call it, by which you come to have faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith, meaning your personal faith, Placed in Jesus Christ is what gets you into heaven. The average Baptist, having been taught by the likes of Billy Graham over years, believes that the sinner must exercise his faith in order to be born again. Well, brethren, the blessed God has given us understanding long ago on this matter. And what we want to do today is to prove, not to speculate, but to show you the proofs from Scripture that show us what we've been taught for many years. We want to consider what we call the seven proofs of unconditional salvation. Again, from man's perspective, what is it that I have to do to get born again? There's nothing that you can do. It all is wrapped up in the work of God himself. And there's seven. Now, there probably there may be more. If you come up with some more, let Brother Jonathan know. I'm sure he'd love to hear it. But over time, in his study of the word, there's seven particular proofs that he's come up with to show that salvation is totally unconditional. First of all, the first proof is that man by nature is unable to. To obey or to please God for salvation. If you look at the capability of the man born naturally into this world, and that's how we all come, right? We all come naturally into this world. We don't have the capability of obeying or pleasing God by our natural birth. To obey God, you've got to have a spiritual birth. And just as you didn't participate in your natural birth other than you were brought forth. It was someone else's activity 
who caused you to be born naturally in the same way spiritually. It's someone else's activity that brings you forth to spiritual life. In the natural state, it was your mother and father coming together. And in the spiritual realm, it's God Almighty making a choice to give you eternal life. Number two, man's will and works. My desires and what I do in Scripture are expressly denied as being what obtains eternal salvation. Three, the follow-up to that is that faith and good works are results of, not conditions for, salvation. See, when you talk to people, they'll say, well, the Bible says you've got to have faith. You know, and you ought to have these good works. That's true. But the faith that we have, the good works that we bring forth from our faith, is not what gets us born again. That's right. These are things that show that we have been born again. Because without God putting faith in us, that we then work out through those works, we wouldn't have faith to begin with. We wouldn't have the good works that flow from faith if God hadn't placed us in us. Fourth, this is one of my favorites right here. And that is, you know, I've always loved a hero. I've always loved a conqueror. I've always loved somebody who can go out and do the, whatever needs to be done by himself. And our fourth point is that Jesus Christ saves sinners by himself without any other human cooperation. Fifth, the teachings of Scripture. And after all, if you're preaching the gospel, right, that's the Scripture. The teachings of Scripture were never intended to give eternal life. They make manifest life that is there. But they don't give life. Our sixth proof is that the scriptures show us examples of men, of sinners, who were born again before the gospel ever came to them. And finally, this is our pastor's favorite point. This is the only scheme of salvation that gives God all the glory. Any other system you want to name will end up with somebody sharing the glory with God. Oh, yes, Jesus Christ had to die on the cross. But if it wasn't for that prayer warrior, if it wasn't for that man handing out the track, if it wasn't for the preacher preaching, the gospel never would have gotten to the person and that person never would have been born again. No. See, that's, that's not... What's it say over in 1 Corinthians, end of chapter 1? He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. If any of these other systems are true, brethren, then you have to glory in the Lord and someone else. Whether it's a preacher, whether it's yourself, whoever it is. This system gives 100% of the glory to Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to do today, is give him the glory for it. Okay, let's jump right in. I only have 13 pages of outline here, so... But, again, I'm going to hit the highlights of this. All this is on the website. And, brethren, these are important matters. These are foundational, fundamental matters that we have to deal with. So, please, avail yourselves of that. Go over it with your families. Go over it yourself. After this service. 
and during other times. First of all, first proof, man by nature is unable to please or obey God for salvation. We already mentioned Genesis chapter 2, didn't we? When I was commenting on Psalm 14, over in Genesis chapter 2, God has made man, he's made the whole world, put man into it. And in verse 16 of chapter 2, he's, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, brethren, did Adam die when he ate the fruit? Answer carefully. Yes and no. Did he physically keel over dead? No. But did he die the day that he ate thereof? Yes, he surely did. What died? What died was his desire towards God. What died was his desire to be obedient, to try to be righteous. By eating that fruit, he rebelled against God. And this is where sin entered into the world. And sin is that principle by which we rebel against God. We say, God, I don't want your ways. God, I want to do it my way. And in his righteousness and holiness, God sent our desire to be rebellious. He enforced that. That's what sin is. God said, you don't want me? You don't want to be obedient to me? That's fine. I'll let you be obedient to something else and someone else. Romans chapter 5 shows us rather plainly that this affected all of mankind. Look at Romans chapter 5, especially like verses 17 through 19. You can do a little bit of flipping today, so I hope you're limbered up and ready for it. Romans 5, 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by, all, by one... Much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men into the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Here you have the contrast of the two Adams. In Scripture, each Adam is a representative for his people. You've got the first Adam who is a representative for all men naturally born into this world. The second Adam was a representative for all of God's spiritual people that he was going to redeem. And notice, by one man's disobedience, sin entered into the world. And it passed, it says, to where? All men. Adam was our representative, and when he sinned, we all sinned in him. You know, if our president gets us into war, we elected him. We chose him. If if he gets us into war, he's leading the whole country. He represents all of us, does he not, before the world. This is a principle that we're very familiar with. If he makes a wise choice, we benefit from it. If he makes a foolish choice, we suffer for it. 
Well, our father Adam made a foolish choice, and we've all suffered for it. Amen. And because of that choice, what is the nature of man since then? Our brother Paul, in the book of Ephesians, who we read from this morning, but one chapter over, tells us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And remember, he's speaking to children of God here. Okay? He's speaking to brethren in congregations. Ephesians 2, 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, look at that, by nature, the children of wrath, even as others. Here Paul has lumped us all together with those who are children of wrath. Back what we saw in Psalm 14. We're dead. This is a death of spiritual ability and desire, not physical or mental capability. You know, when Adam died, when Adam sinned and he died spiritually, his intellect didn't change. He was still as intelligent as he was beforehand. Now, because of the principle of sin, physical corruption did start. After that initial sin. But he didn't die instantly. I mean, brethren, we're born in this world. We grow up. And eventually we age and die. So we're not talking about physical capability. We're not talking about mental capability. But what about our desires? What about what we seek after? What about what we want to do? It's corrupt. It wants to do anything and everything contrary to God. Now, that doesn't mean that every sinner does every sin imaginable. But what it does mean is what he imagines, the things that he's drawn to, are things that are contrary to God's will and to God's righteousness and holiness. It tells us over in Romans chapter 3, this is a good passage. It's where, it's here where Paul quotes what we read this morning. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. That's Psalm 14. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. See, nobody wants to find God. Nobody's looking for God. But all you've got to do is believe. Well, you've got to be seeking for him first to believe in him, don't you? And here it says that you're not seeking for him. No one is seeking for him. Look at verse 18 here in Romans 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's fear in the wicked, but it's none of God. Or if it is, it's a fear that makes him run from God, not run towards him. They don't fear God. You know, I've heard it said before, the fear that the wicked have of God is the fear of I got caught. You saw me and do what I did and you caught me. Man in sin, here's a key point, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Man in sin can't know God's ways. If belief of the gospel 
And that's the simplest one. Okay, that's the simplest form we've got, right, of salvation. Is you just got to believe. Well, if that's the case, you're sunk. You don't have a leg to stand on. Romans, I mean, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us, but the natural man, and that's what? All of us in this world before God does anything to us spiritually. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. Because they're spiritually discerned. That word can doesn't speak of desire. It speaks of ability. The natural man does not have the ability to understand. Now, you may have guys that are PhDs in English, PhDs in Greek and Hebrew. They could sit there and parse this out and explain perfectly what this all means. But it does not sink in. It's just some obscure concept that they're just laying out before you. Without God working a work of grace in your heart, you can't understand truth. Now, let me ask you a question. question you can ask somebody you're talking to. You're trying to show the truth of the gospel to. And they say, well, all you've got to do is believe. You've got to preach the gospel. Okay. What kind of man are you going to be speaking to? Is he a natural man or a spiritual man? Well, obviously, he's a natural man, right? You're trying to get him to become a spiritual man. He's dead in trespasses and sins. They'll acknowledge that because the Bible says that. They just don't understand the full impact of it. Okay? So what kind of message do I need to bring to make him a spiritual man? A natural message or a spiritual message? Spiritual message, right? I mean, if we're going to call it baseball or something like that, that's not going to get him born again. We've got to talk about this. But Paul just said that the natural man won't receive the things of the Spirit of God. Over in John chapter 8, one time Jesus was talking to a group of men and told them, you know, you don't believe me because I tell you the truth. If I tell you a lie, you'll believe that. So what kind of salvation do we have to have to tell lies to people to make them born again? See, it falls apart. Man, by nature, in this world, nothing else different has not the capability for being born again. He is spiritually incapable. Oh, but what if he sees a miracle? What if we raise somebody from the dead, heal somebody from his illness? Over in Luke 16... Talking to the rich young, uh, talking to uh, the rich man who died. Remember that Lazarus, who went on to be in Abraham's bosom. What did that rich man say, Lord, Father Abraham? I've got five brothers that are home. I don't want them to come to this place. Send Lazarus to them to talk to them. He says, Son, they've got Moses and the prophet. Oh, but you don't understand, my brothers. They believe if Lazarus came from the dead. He says, Abraham tells him, and this is Jesus Christ speaking through Abraham's voice. If one were to come from the dead, yet they won't believe. 
It's a spiritual message. Brethren, further proof of that, did the Pharisees understand the Sadducees, the rulers of the day? The chief of the Sanhedrin actually brought forth a prophecy, right, that was necessary for Jesus to die. They saw Lazarus, whom they knew was dead for three days. What was their reaction to that? To want to believe on Jesus or to want to kill Lazarus? That's the natural man. That's the ignorance of the heart of the natural man. Confronted with spiritual reality, it wants to destroy it and get it out of its sight. So, point one. And any of these points, brethren, any one of these points destroys any other system of salvation. So point number one, man by nature is unable to please God or obey him to obtain salvation. Let's go into point two. And that's it, that man's will and works are expressly denied. It's not just that they're kind of there and you've got to figure this out. God flat out says, no, it's not your will. It's not your works that's involved in your salvation. Go to John chapter 1, verse 13. John chapter 1. Verse 12 is a, a sugar, sugar cookie for most Arminians and others who want man's will involved. Verse 11 talks about the fact that, that the, the light, the true light, which is Jesus Christ in context, came to his own, and his own received it not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. See, all you've got to do is believe on Jesus, and you'll become born again. But the problem is the sentence doesn't end there. It's a colon, which means there's more to finish this verse out before the period. And let's see what that rest of the verse says. Which... And here's where your English grammar has to come into place. Here's where you need to know a little bit about English, okay, to understand the verse. Verse 12 ends up that believing on Christ's name, and belief is present tense, which were born. Now, what is that? Past perfect. Something that happened back here that has results that come on forward. Which were born. You've got your birth occurring back here. You've got belief here. You've got being born back here. And now how were they born? Which were born. Not of blood. Okay, well, Jewish descent. Racial stock. Doesn't count. Nor of the will of the flesh. Oops. My decision. My decision for Jesus just got ruled out. Nor the will of man. Oh, here went that priest sprinkling holy water on me. There went my parents getting me baptized as an infant. But of God. Which were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The new birth is totally by God's choice in this verse. How about Romans chapter 9? Romans chapter 9, one of my favorite passages. Romans chapter 9. Again, talking about God's choice. 
Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 15. For he saith to Moses. And who is this saying to Moses? This is God himself. I am that I am. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What's Paul's conclusion? So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. If you're going to be shown mercy in God's sight, it's because he chose to do it. Not because you were willing for him to do it. Not because you were running after him. Your prayers, your good deeds, none of that influences him when it comes to getting your eternal salvation. And please remember, this is what we're focusing on. We're not talking about what the gospel is about. We're not talking about a thousand and one other things that we teach. Right now we're just looking at how do I get to heaven? How does any sinner get to end of God's presence? It can't be. It cannot be because of something that I, the sinner, did. It's not by my choosing it. It's not by my grasping for it. It's by God showing mercy. It's by God saying, I'm going to show mercy to New Eastland. He ought to go to hell. He's one of Adam's race. That right alone deserves hell. And you know what? He contributed to it throughout his life. And I'm going to show what a great God I am. He was rebellious against me. I'm going to change his nature. I'm going to have my son die for him. And I'm going to put him with me in heaven as one of my children. Man's will and works expressly denied. Look at verse, same chapter, verse 9. See how God denies man's works in salvation. We're in chapter 9. Look at verse 11. Another example, a personal example of God's choice is what's under consideration. This whole chapter is about God's choice and in choice in salvation. For the children, here he's referring to the child, the children that were in Rebekah's womb. Jacob and Esau. For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. Can you get more plain than that? They haven't been born yet. They haven't even done any good or evil. That the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. God just made a choice. And for anybody with a tender conscience, you understand, we are not talking about two innocent babes in the womb. We're talking about two sinners in the womb. They were equally corrupt. But God said, you know, out of those two boys... I'm going to let Esau be what he is by birth, a natural man, and I hate that. But I'm going to make a difference in the life of that man, Jacob. God makes choices. 
as we've already read, verse 16, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but God that showeth mercy. Now, just to help us out, God gave us a little bit more. Because, you see, most people believe, Protestants in particular, they believe that faith, you mean you've got works, but faith is this kind of strange little something out here. It's just sitting out there a little different, okay? It's kind of the magic elixir by which you get eternal life, okay? They understand all too well, because Scripture is too plain on that, that faith, that means that works, don't get you saved. But then there's this thing called faith out there. Well, you know what? God says that faith is a work. Over in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 28. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Sounds like we're about to hear a work, don't you? Then Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him that hath sent him. Belief is a work. I mean, please, somebody show me, tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm misinterpreting this, if I'm resting this passage. I think it's rather plain. Belief is a work. But Paul, writing to a minister, Titus, over in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, tells us very plainly that salvation is not by works. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his own mercy, he saved us by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That sounds like some activity on God's side. I don't hear me involved or anybody else involved. Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three. Jesus Christ, talking about the Pharisees, said they had omitted the weightier matters of the law. Mercy, justice and faith. Faith is a work. Faith is me exercising an ability God's given me. And believing on Jesus Christ. Trusting on Him. Faith is something that has to be given to me. Salvation comes to men in what state? What state are we in when salvation comes to us? Ephesians chapter 1, and you at the quickened, who were, two rather, who were dead in trespasses and sins. See, we were dead. And you read that context, it says what? We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. Among whom we all had our conversation times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, were by nature children of wrath, even as others. We were children of wrath. We were dead in sins. We've got to be taken out of that state before we can do anything appealing and righteous towards God. So you see, our will and our works 
has nothing to do with our salvation. Where does it come from? John 3, 8. How does it describe the Spirit's action? The wind bloweth where it listeth. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. What's that tell me? I go out out on a day like yesterday, okay? Nice breeze blowing through. Can I see that breeze? No. Not directly. But I can see the effects of the breeze, right? I can see the, the, the trees as they're moving in the wind. The branches fluttering. The leaves fluttering around. I can see that, right? I see the effects. Is that what's causing the wind? Or is that an effect showing the wind's presence? Same thing. You see somebody who believes. That's the effect of the Spirit in their life. You see somebody who wants to work righteousness. That's because the Spirit is in him or her. That's not what causes the Spirit to come into them, but it shows the Spirit is there. Again, the fact that only God's will is active, back at Romans 9, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, the conclusion of that argument, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Proof two. Proof two. Let's go to our third proof. We've already alluded to this. We're just talking about it. The fact that faith and good works are the results of, not the conditions for salvation. Do you understand the difference in the wording there? Faith and good works, just like that wind blowing, okay? The result of the wind blowing are the trees moving. Trees moving are not the condition for the wind blowing. All spiritual ability has to be given by God. We've already seen the passages that prove that we come into this world dead. No desire towards God. No capability, remember? As a, as a natural man, I can't even understand the things of the Spirit of God. I only want lies. If Jesus Christ, the only way that I would understand Jesus Christ is if he told me lies. So I have to have a change. Some new abilities have to be given to me if I'm to, to believe and to do good works. But over in Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about this. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. After he, a beautiful passage. Oh, brethren, I mean, this is, this is a... Short rabbit, but just if you want a beautiful passage to know what you ought to be like in your mind. If you want to know, if you ever wonder, well, how should I think? What should be my thoughts about how I live in this world? Read Philippians chapter 2 from verse 1 down to about uh, 8 or so, 11, whatever. I mean, because it's talking about the mind of Jesus Christ, that he was God himself. And he emptied himself and came to be a servant, even to dying the death of the cross for us. 
You want to know how you ought to live life? That's how you ought to live life. But having said all that, Paul then comes on to say, Wherefore, verse 12, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed. These were a good church. The Philippians were great folks. Even as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He asked them to work out their salvation. Notice he didn't tell them to get born again. He says, work out your salvation. These are saved people, and they're working out that. They're showing and demonstrating what God has put in them. Well, how do you know that, Newell? For, verse 13, it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And here again, your understanding of words is key. It does not say that God works out the willing and the doing. That's fatalism. That's, that's what says, hey, I'm just a puppet on a string and I do whatever God makes me do. If this verse said God works out the willing and the doing, you would be right. But it doesn't say that. It says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will, that's ability, and to do, that's ability of his good pleasure. God in regeneration gives us faith. He gives us the ability to do good. Now, to what extent we work that out in our lives, that's our responsibility. And that's, no, that's one of the phases of salvation, which we're not dealing with today. But God works in the ability. God has to place that ability there before you can work out your salvation. Over in Jeremiah chapter 32, it says, And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for, for the good of them. And their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts. That they shall not depart from me. Brethren, if we've not departed from God. It's because he put his fear in our heart. And again, we're not talking about a fear that runs from God. But a fear that is afraid to offend our loving father in heaven. Ephesians chapter 2, we've been there before. Ephesians chapter 2, one of the passages most people know. For by grace are you saved through faith. Ephesians 2, 8. And that not of yourselves. Hoo-hoo. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. How people can twist that around and make it out to be, i got to believe. It's kind of a mystery, isn't it? Because verse 10, the very next verse helps explain it. For we are his workmanship. See, God's done a work on us if we've got grace. If we've got faith that we're exercising. We're a workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You see that? God works in us. He makes us a new creation so that we can do good works now. Before we couldn't. We were the children of wrath, even as others. But now he's made a change in us, and we can start doing good works. And the first good work is what? To believe on his name. See, 
See, God's children are created to do good works, not because of them. It doesn't say, I did good works and God then created me to be his child. No, God created me. And then the good works flow from that new creation. Faith has to be given in salvation. You know, one of the most, when I first saw this, I mean, it was one of those just, my eyes just popped open when I saw this first with understanding. So many people are going out there wanting to save. And please, when we say things, don't, don't misunderstand me. I have great sympathy for them. I understand. They want to do what they think is right, but they've been misled. They just don't understand. They've not had anybody to teach them the truth of Scripture as it is. They want to go out and get people saved, right? They want to go out and sit on the, on the street corners and preach to people coming by. They want to go to the worst parts of town, right? To try to get people born again. There's a problem with that. You've got to have faith before you can believe. But not everybody's got faith. And especially the verse I'm about to read, ooh, I mean, this just blows that whole concept away that most people have. Because here you have the greatest of the evangelists, the greatest of the, the apostles. And what does he say about faith and folks who don't have it and what he wants to do for them or with them? He wants to have nothing to do with them. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2. Oh, start with verse 1. Beautiful context. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even as it is with you. See, he wants the word of God that he preached to be glorified wherever he went. Part of that glory meant, verse 2, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith. Wait a minute, Paul. Aren't you preaching to get men to believe on Jesus? Aren't you trying to impart faith? No. Paul knew very well God had to do that first. If he saw a, a wicked and an unreasonable man, he wanted to get as far away from him as possible. He did not want to go preach the gospel to that kind of man. And look at the pattern. In the New Testament, where is it that we see the Apostle Paul and all the apostles going? Do they go to jails to preach? No, they were arrested and put in jail, and while there they sang hymns to encourage themselves. But where do we see them going? What is their practice? They would go into a town, and what would they do? Find the nearest synagogue. Amen. Why? Religious people are there. Amen. Here people are already showing evidence that God means something to them, even the true God. Hey, maybe some of his true elect children are in this synagogue. Let's go preach there. Oh, but he went to Athens on Mars Hill. Well, he went to Athens while he was there. He talked and they asked him to come to Mars Hill to talk about what he did. And sure, he's going to do that. And there were some converts there. But Paul didn't go looking for Mars Hill because he knew there was a lot of foolish philosophy there. When he was invited, he went and gave them a good sermon. What else? What other locations did we see people going to? He went to a prayer. I mean, when he went to a place, there was no synagogue. What does it say? He went to a stream, right? A river. Where? Prayer was made. Prayer was wanted to be made. Yeah. 
Again, we got religious people. We got people who want to find God. That's where Paul went to. He wanted to be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men because not all all men have faith. One of the best evidences that faith and good works are evidence of salvation and not prerequisites for it are our brother Cornelius. Acts chapter 10. Think about it. Before Peter came, what, what was the testimony? What was the testimony that we have by an angelic revelation of the nature of Cornelius? Acts 10, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, one that feared God with all his house. What does it say about the wicked? There is no fear of God before their eyes. But here's a man that fears God, which gave much alms to the people. Here's a man doing good deeds. Remember over in Psalm 14, it talked about how the wicked... In regard to the poor, right? They contradicted God's goodness towards the poor in what they were doing. Yet here's a man who's trying to take care of the poor. And prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. Here's a man who is already accepted by God. God accepts his prayers, accepts his almsgiving. Gospel hasn't come to him yet. Because part of what, what's the angel doing? Saying, you need to go send for one Peter who's going to teach you what you need to know. Before Peter came with the good news, Cornelius was already praying to God and having his prayers accepted. God had cleansed Cornelius before Peter ever came. So here we see an example of the fact that good works are evidence of salvation, not prerequisites. Faith is an evidence, not a prerequisite for eternal salvation. Point four. I need to hurry up. I'm losing time. Point four. Jesus Christ saves sinners by himself. Romans chapter five. We were there earlier. Let's go through it very briefly. This is subject we've heard before, and I just want to remind you of it. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. Sin is not imputed, for there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is a free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more by the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many. 
And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. You've got a constant contract being a contrast between Jesus and Adam. What Adam did to us, what Jesus has done for us. And as it is not and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but by the free gift of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. That one man is Jesus Christ. Brethren, did you have to personally accept Adam to be your sin giver? Did you? Neither do you have to accept Jesus Christ to be your Savior. From the standpoint of affecting your salvation. And notice... How many times does it point out? One man brought sin. One man brought righteousness. One man brought destruction. One man brought salvation. That's Jesus Christ, brethren. Brethren, if you ever get a hold of this, it will make you angry. You'll be angry when you see somebody trying to steal the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ by making out some other way of people to go to heaven and stealing his glory. Over in Hebrews, it talks about Christ being a high priest of good things to come. That one time he entered into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 17. Beautiful passage, brethren. People talk about the offer of the gospel. There's no offer in the gospel, brethren. The gospel is a commandment to believe on Jesus Christ. But there was an offer involved in our eternal salvation. And that was when Jesus Christ rose up on high with his blood-stained hands to show the Father it is finished. And the Father looked at that offering, the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ for our sins. And he said, you're right, it's finished. That's the perfect sacrifice for the sins of my people. And that was not an offering made to you or me. That's not an offering a preacher can make. It's an offering Jesus Christ did one time. And it was accepted. And that's why we are accepted before God. Hebrews chapter 10. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he might establish a second. Talking about the covenant. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every 
priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10, 9 through 14. Jesus Christ, one offering for sin, is what saves us, brethren. That's what redeems us. Proof 5. Teachings of scriptures do not give eternal life. Remember, the gospel can do no good to a natural man. It's foolishness to him. 1 Corinthians 1.18 It's a spiritual message that he cannot receive. 1 Corinthians 2.14 and Luke 16. The gospel only brings life to light. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10. Starting at verse 9, 2 Timothy 1.9. Speaking of the power of God who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling. Not according to our works. The Lord likes to keep bringing that up, doesn't he? Not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Oh, brethren, that's a whole lot earlier than any belief I could have had. Way out of my range. But is now made manifest. See, the fact that God chose us before the foundation of the world is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Brethren, the gospel is a big floodlight that shows us what Jesus Christ has done. In that floodlight, you can see. You can see who does certain things. And by seeing those things, you can see that God's work to work of grace in their heart. The gospel doesn't come to put light in someone. It came to manifest. It came to show forth what was there. And from all the other proofs we've already looked at, we can see that there's the gospel is not given to give life. The gospel is given to show life that is already there by God's work. Number six, proofs of unconditional salvation. What about John the Baptist? What happened with John when he was six months old? He, he was in utero, came into the presence. His mother, Elizabeth, came into the presence of Mary, who was at that point pregnant with our Lord, carrying him. And what was John's reaction? He leaped in joy in his mother's womb. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Joy. Joy. Peace. I mean, he demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit as a child, as an infant in the presence of our Lord. You mean God can make somebody born again before they're even born? Uh Uh-huh. He's God. Amen. Cornelius we've already looked at. We've already talked about Cornelius. How he came before Peter came to him. He feared God. 
He gave alms. He had his family gathered together to hear this good news. What about Lot? Can anybody show me any good work that Lot ever did? But 2 Peter 2, 7 through 8 talks about righteous Lot and how his soul was vexed. Remember all the things that Brother Red said about that man. How we don't want to have a life like that. And yet... He's listed as a righteous man. What made him righteous? Wasn't his profession. It wasn't his deeds. It was his Lord who made him righteous. It was the God of heaven who chose him to be one of his children. I'm not going to go over. Please go to the website and check it out. There's all sorts of, there's a number of lists of, of others. Examples in scripture who were born again, showed evidence of eternal life without belief of the gospel. But number seven, this is the only scheme of salvation, brethren, that gives God all the glory. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. Because you know what? This even astounded Christ's apostles. Matthew 19, starting at verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Believe on me. That's all he needed to say, wasn't it? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the young man said unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? He had a rather narrow vision of of these things. But the Lord, rather than going into a lot of great detail, hid him where it counted. Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect... Go, and sell that that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. The young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The Lord knows all of our hearts what counts most. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Lord, if a rich man can't enter in, who can? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen. And brethren, that's the source of our salvation. The God who can do the impossible. Go back to where I started out this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. 
Ephesians chapter 1. Everything in this world, brethren, is meant to bring glory and honor to God. That's why we're created. That's why this world exists. That's why there's going to be a day of judgment. That's why there's going to be an eternity. To bring glory and honor to God. And this is the only way that does that. Look how Paul describes it over in Ephesians. To the praise of the glory of His grace, Ephesians 1.6, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. What's the emphasis here? Him. His. Whether it's His choice, His grace, His redemption, God's the center of it all. Wherein He hath abounded toward us, verse 8, in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him, who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that you should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ. Brethren, this is the only scheme that gives God all the glory. If for nothing else, this is the most important proof, because it gives God the glory. takes it away from man and gives it to Him. I hope that you've been reminded of some of these things this morning. I hope you'll go out and check it out. Rejoice in what the Lord's done for us. Be ready to give an answer to those who ask you a reason of the hope that's in you. And that answer is not in what you've done. That answer is not in what you believed. That answer is in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Amen.